0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics,
1: trends,
0: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, managing editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine, and your host for Trumpet Hour. Today we're devoting the show to youth. We're broadcasting from the offices of the Trumpet Magazine in Edmond, Oklahoma. It's on the headquarters campus of the Philadelphia Church of God and Herbert W. Armstrong College. We've just finished up a summer camp for 144 teenagers from around the world, And later on in the program, we're going to talk with the camp director, Wayne Turgeon, and his assistant, Eric Burns, about what they've been doing for the past three weeks, what they're trying to accomplish in the lives of these young people, the strategies they use to have a successful camp, and and what works so well in working with these kids. That's going to be in our third segment, but before we get to that, We're going to hit a couple of other youth-related stories based on headlines from the world around us. We'll start by talking about something remarkable going on with the people and the youth of Russia. The government of Vladimir Putin is working to prepare Russian youth to give their lives for their country through military patriotic education. Now, it's having an amazing effect. The support for the army and the desire to serve the country is higher than it's ever been. Putin's approval ratings are in the stratosphere. We're going to talk with trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about this phenomenon and what it means for Russia's future and Russia's place in the world. Our second story is about the United States the Obama administration is drawing attention to our public schools and the way we're handling discipline with our young people. The administration says that the high number of suspensions and expulsions is a real problem. But it says the problem isn't with the students, it's with the teachers and it's with the system. And the administration is implementing a controversial curriculum to try to correct the problem. Honestly, When I learned about this and some of the ideas that they're forcing on these schools and feeding to our young people, I was absolutely shocked. We're going to talk with trumpet writer Robert Morley, who's written a story about this, to learn about what these politicians are up to. And I'm going to conclude today's show by talking about my personal experience at summer camp as a teenager and how it turned around my relationship with my parents. All this on today's Trumpet Hour. Vladimir Putin has taken Russia a long way since the Cold War. Now, one thing that Vladimir Putin is doing is working with the youth of Russia, preparing them to give their lives for their country, and they're using military patriotic education in order to do it. It starts as young as five years old. They have youths up to age 18 doing military exercises and going camping, training with weapons, Support for the army is at an all-time high. The desire to serve the country is in the stratosphere. Putin's approval ratings are very high. I spoke with trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about this, and here is our interview. So, Jeremiah, we talked about this last week, uh, one of the stories that you brought to our attention in the week in review session, Uh, the fact that there's this surge in patriotism and nationalism really among Russian youth. Just remind us the uh, statistics that we're seeing coming out of Russia right now.
2: Yeah, sure. This is a a report by a Latvian publication called Medusa, and it came out a couple of weeks ago, and it just says that support for the army and the desire to serve the nation have reached an all-time high in Russia. And that's, uh, that's saying a lot right there, because during the Cold War era especially, there was just an incredible amount of uh, nationalism and militarism as the Soviets sort of uh, faced off against the Americans. Great enthusiasm for the military then, but now it is even higher. And so this report says that um, just in the last year, the number of applicants who submit uh, interest in the military has doubled just in the last year. And it was already very high a year ago. And at this point, there are six men applying for every position available. And for women, there are 30 applicants for every available position.
0: So this is something that uh, the West has tried so much to punish Russia for its uh, adventurism in Eastern Europe and so on. And the economic sanctions that we've enacted against Russia, it's meant to kind of uh, put some separation between the ambitions of the leaders and the popular support.
2: Uh, This is really happening counter to all of those efforts. That's exactly right. There was great hope that by implementing these sanctions, it would make the Russian people suffer and it would it would eventually sour their view of President Putin.
0: Yeah, stop, stop uh, trying to take over the world so that we can go back to,
2: like, leading a normal life and the international community won't consider us pariahs. That's what the West hoped. That's what America hoped. If we put a little bit of pressure on the whole nation, it'll turn the everyday Russian against him. It'll turn those elite Russians, the billionaires, the oligarchs against him. And eventually it'll lead to regime change and it will, uh, you know, get rid of Vladimir Putin and hopefully put someone in power who's a little more reasonable, a little less adventuristic, more less uh, expansionistic. So uh, just remind me, it seems to me
0: like it was only a year ago or something where we were talking about the uh, this sort of uh, unrest and dis- disenfranchisement among especially, the uh, say, the upper class in Russia against Putin. And there was talk that he was kind of on the end of his reign, that uh, he was losing support and so on. Uh,
2: am i am I wrong it wasn 't that long ago right that 's right yeah, that was uh I believe in September somewhere around there that 's when many western analysts were were coming out and saying the sanctions are working they 're really isolating putin they're they 're turning these oligarchs and and a lot of the populace against him um, but at the trumpet, we always said it 's not going to work it 's not going to happen, and in fact, what did happen is a revitalized and rejuvenated and restored support for Vladimir Putin, despite those sanctions, despite the suffering that many Russians felt. They just threw their weight behind him all the more. The more ambitious he got for the nation, the more they threw their support behind him. In one sense, you could look at um,
0: these these adventures that he's undertaken in Ukraine and Crimea, um, the Baltics, and, and say— um, Anytime he finds his polls slipping, all he has to do is launch another invasion somewhere, and that seems to correct the problem. That seems to pull people behind him. But it seems like there's maybe even something more than that. Uh, more, uh, just in the, the the Russian mindset and the desire to see their nation return to greatness. It seems to me like Putin is more than just kind of trying to bump his numbers up.
2: Yes, I think he. I think he is. He's sincere in everything that he does. I believe, like he he wants to see a return of Russian glory. He wants to see um, a, a restoration of that Soviet empire that collapsed. He's, he's famous for saying that he views the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest catastrophe of the entire 20th century. And there were a lot of catastrophes that century. Mm. The Russian people are totally behind him. And it's because the Russian people feel a little bit slighted. They feel like they've been misrepresented. Uh, they feel like they've been dealt with unfairly by America, by the Western world, by the so-called international community. And so when they see this strong leader... Uh, working to regain what they, many of them, view as their rightful place as sort of a superpower-type nation, not some Tier 3 nation, which is the way they feel that they're being felt and viewed since the collapse of the Soviet Union, right. then they just get very enthusiastic about it.
0: Well, even demographically, it seems like there have been a lot of Western analysts who've been pretty quick to kind of write the epitaph of the of the Russian Federation uh, for quite some time and to say, you know, if we just kind of... If we hold out long enough, the threat will
2: go away. That's true. The demographics, it is an aging nation. It's not happening as quickly as it is in, in places like Japan or even Germany, I believe. But it is aging. If it were not for uh, immigration, their population would really be falling quickly. And so immigration means their their numbers are basically sustained. However, it's not, it's not traditional Russians. It's not those of uh, Slavic origins who are coming in. Um, I, I think that if, if time went on for long enough, um, then that could be a consideration. Maybe the Russian threat would dwindle just because of, of the declining population, but I believe it would, it would take decades before that began to really, um, curtail the, the Russian threat that we see right now on the scene. I, this might be a bit of a, uh, um, A side side
0: sidestep, but I'm just thinking about uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the way that he talked about Russia when he was really issuing his strongest critiques of what happened and just sort of the sickness at Russia's heart when he was bringing that to the attention of the West and he was exposing some of the the gory, gruesome details of the Gulag system and that type of thing. He was talking about the fact that there was never a repentance within Russia for what it did, for 20 million deaths within that system. I think there were something like maybe half a dozen people who were convicted of, of crimes within the country after all of that. I just wonder if uh, how much that sickness still exists within Russia. To listen to uh, Solzhenitsyn, he died a few years back, obviously, but but I would think he would say that it's still very much alive. Is How much does that play into, say, the kind of response that you see among Russians to
2: what's happening in the
0: country today?
2: I think there are some worrying indications that that same spirit is very much alive. And probably the most evident sign of that is Vladimir Putin himself. He's a product of the KGB, that system that was uh, you know, run by Stalin, that system that, it, well, it was a, a big component of the the Soviet government. Which was the most heavy handed of governments, the most oppressive, totally intolerant of any dissent, any even questioning of the government, well, even what you brought attention to, the fact that uh,
0: Vladimir Putin says that the worst uh the worst tragedy of the twentieth century was the fall of the Soviet Union, and he would have been privy to a lot of that activity uh within that system, having been uh, basically a
2: product of the kgB uh, that tells you a lot right there it does yes he's he 's viewed in some ways as sort of the people 's leader he 's a self made man he didn't come from a long line of of uh you know leaders or politicians or something like that and and he was self made in the k g b in in that very authoritarian uh, component of the Soviet government. So he would have seen a lot, probably even been a part in some ways. We we don't know what all of his history with the organization was, but he climbed very quickly through the ranks of it and then emerged when uh when Yeltsin was when his health was declining, Putin was there to emerge as a uh, sort of the forerunner to become president. And it was a big surprise. No one expected him to sort of jump out of the ranks and all of a sudden be the president. But now there he's been for 15 years, and he just has, I believe it's 89% approval ratings right now, just just stratospheric approval among his people. And the military that he's leading is now enjoying a paralleled support and enthusiasm and, and just uh, fervor for it.
0: So much of what we look at when we, we we talk about Vladimir Putin, we've had a couple of uh, some landmark articles written by the editor in chief of the Trumpet, Gerald Flurry, that have really drawn attention to him as a personality. And you see, say the, the numbers that you're drawing attention to here, the nationalistic fervor that's going that's uh, stirring within the Russian people, and it really calls to mind those those prophecies that Mr. Flurry has uh, pointed to about this Prince of Rosh who would lead this uh, great Russian power in the end time, the fact that there's this alignment between Russia and China, and it's really Russia that is at the head of that. A lot of people analyzing what's going on in Asia today, they would say you know, a lot of ways China would be the preeminent power in that in that duo, but that's not the way the Bible
2: describes it. It's it's interesting to look at it in that respect. It's very interesting, yes. A- everyone can see that Russia and China are coming together. And, and that's something that uh, that the Trump and our forerunner magazine, The Plain Truth, have said would happen with confidence, even at a time when those two nations were, were in heated border battles and disputes, and it really looked totally contrary to, to the evidence. We said they will become allied together. Uh, and now we see it happening, and most people, as you said, believe that China will be sort of uh, steering that that duo. China's much more powerful in terms of uh, their economic power. And even militaristically, they, they have uh, one of the largest armies on Earth. Their population, of course, dwarfs Russia's. There's a lot of reasons that people think that, you know, even if there is this alliance, it'll be very much steered by Beijing and not Moscow. But we have, we have said, based on those prophecies that you mentioned, Mr. Fleury has, has been adamant saying, no, it will be Russia. It'll be, it'll be Vladimir Putin, who's identified in scripture as the Prince of Rush that uh, or, or the Prince of Russia, that will um, actually be the, the leadership of this massive alliance. And, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot of indications that that is happening even now, despite China's economic edge over Russia
0: they have a lot of the advantages they have a lot of the resources what they don't seem to have is that cult of personality that russia has they don't have that that singular individual at the helm who commands that kind of respect and that it's easy for people to sort of rally behind uh, who seems to really have a vision for where he wants to take
2: the nation. Yes, uh, Xi Jinping there in China, he, is, he, he has consolidated his power faster and to a stronger degree than any other Chinese leader in recent memory, but he's still legions behind Vladimir Putin in terms of that sort of uh, charisma. Well, it's a very interesting story to
0: follow. Uh, I think just the the details that you give us in this article this is this is called a tale of two militaries. Uh, you can find it on thetrumpet.com today. Um, it it does give us a real picture of what's happening within the engine room of Russia, uh, and just the on the grassroots level within the population of Russia that uh, kind of give you a, a, a picture of just how widespread and how ardent the popular support is behind their, their leader, Mr. Putin. So we do really appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Thanks for coming in, Jeremiah. Great to be here. You can read the article, A Tale of Two Militaries, online at thetrumpet.com. Trumpet.com. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Recently, the White House tweeted this. The number of students suspended in America each year could fill 45 Super Bowl stadiums. It's time to hashtag rethink discipline in our schools. It's a big problem but what does the administration mean by rethink discipline? Is the problem bad discipline? This administration is uh, forcing some schools to adopt a new curriculum to supposedly address this issue in ways that you need to be aware of. Trumpet writer Robert Morley has looked into this situation and and looked at this curriculum. He's going to tell us about it. Robert, first of all,
3: what do they mean by rethink discipline? Well, uh, they want to completely eliminate suspensions from schools that is um, a non-starter now um, kids cannot be uh, suspended and they cannot be expelled either from schools okay so that's the starting point at the same
0: time that you're drawing attention to this number of the number of students who are being hit by that penalty which they don't like they're also drawing attention to disproportionality
3: uh, racially right? So the data shows that uh, minority students and black students in particular get suspended at rates higher than white students. So I think the, the stat that the White House gave is that black students on average across America get suspended at about 3.5 times uh, what white students do. So is, is that the real
0: issue? I mean, are they going after all suspensions or is it more of the, uh, say, racial disparity?
3: Right. Well, this is the lens that uh, they, they're viewing this through. They are arguing that the disparity uh, between suspensions between white students and minority students is due to racism. And if you look at um, the schools that the Justice Department has targeted and of what they have said, um, it's very clear that they believe that um, racism is a driving factor behind this disparity. And it even flies in the face of uh, the fact that you could look at suspensions of Asian students, and what they find is that Asian students actually get suspended less than white students. Um, But that doesn't matter for some reason. Um, But the fact that blacks and Latinos get suspended at rates higher than white students is seen as evidence that uh, teachers on average are racist, that the educational system in America is systemically institutionally racist against blacks and Latinos. This is based on the fundamental premise
0: that all students behave exactly the same, Uh, that there couldn't have any basis in the fact that, say, more of this type of student is acting up than this type of student.
3: That's what teachers are trying to tell the administration. The unions in some of these schools have actually been very strong, um, coming out and defending their teachers and saying, look, this isn't a result of teachers being um, racist against their students. Teachers, on average, they want to help students. That's why they go into the teaching discipline. Uh, But uh, the White House um, has been looking at the raw numbers, and they argue that Anything that is affecting students, like a racial group I'm in excess of another one, is evidence of racism, and that needs to change.
0: Okay, so I, I was reading your article. It appeared on trumpet.com, the title of the article, President Obama's Plan to Revamp Discipline in Schools. There's this point in this article where it talks about this uh, Pacific Educational Group curriculum. First of all, uh, just so I understand this correctly— if they if the administration deems there to be a uh, a problem in terms of disparity in the in the way that some of these punishments are being handed down
3: Their solution is you need to implement this curriculum. Is that correct? Right. So it's certain schools, any schools that have been found to have what they're calling disparate impact on blacks or minorities in terms of suspensions. So this is mostly hitting in large cities like New York, Minneapolis, San Diego, Los Angeles Unified School District. These districts that have large inner city populations. And in these schools, black students are getting suspended. Um, at very, very high rates, and I think this is what is drawing the attention right now. So you're, it's fair to say
0: that this is a, it's a Justice Department approved curriculum. I want to go ahead and read some of the items on this curriculum that were in your article that caused me to choke on my breakfast here. This uh, list, where did this come from specifically?
3: This list uh, was put together by the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They've written several articles over the years um, chronicling um, the beliefs of the Pacific Educational Group. But if you go to the Pacific Educational Group website, you can find all these things on there in their various presentations, the curriculum that they put out there. Um, to be adopted by schools that have problems with quote-unquote disproportionate um, suspensions or um, expels for um, minority students.
0: Okay, so as I'm reading this bullet point list, this is essential principles that are being forced on these schools that have been found to be in breach of the 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 proportionality that they should have, the the beliefs that they need to come to recognize. The achievement gap between black and white students can be explained by and only by racism. The educational system in America is racist against minorities. Parents are not a main factor in how well students do at school. I'm just going down this bullet point list. Even black and minority teachers are racist against black students because they have been co-opted into the white power structure. Teachers don't understand the, quote, special ways blacks and Hispanics communicate. Defining one form of the English language as a standard or grammatically correct is racist. These are phenomenal notions that they would be imposing on, I I would assume, against the will of any educator with a modicum of
3: common sense. Um are people speaking out against this? Lots of people are speaking out against it. But unfortunately, a lot of the teachers, a lot of the, I think the, the, the officials within the educational department from principal level down are very handicapped about what they can say because um, race is such a touchy subject that um, I think a lot of these people fear for their jobs. And and uh, at the superintendent level and higher, a lot of these people are appointees, and they basically follow the line that's being handed down from Washington um, right now in the education department. But I mean, you can go out there and you can read some of the things some of these teachers are are writing about, just saying, "Look at our the things that are happening in our schools once once these things these are are starting to be adopted." This um, let's the, talk about that.
0: Yeah. What 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 are the effects once this is implemented? You you mentioned in your article that this group has been around since 1992. So there's some track record to go on.
3: Yeah, there sure is. Uh, On the positive side, um, it doesn't seem like... Well, I guess there is really no positive side. What I was going to say is that um, the Pacific Educational Group, um, a lot of these schools... um, the, the performance of students has not helped. It has not helped them at all. The, all this curriculum is being adopted under the guise of helping black and minority students overcome the racist system and close the achievement gap, help them perform better in schools. And what they're finding is that there has been no improvement so far in any of these schools that the Pacific Education Group or similar groups have come in um, to, to solve this racism problem that's holding down the black students there has been no improvement. Now, as you said, they've been in operation since 1992. They've really been adopted and brought in since probably about 2006. But um, it's even been more recent um, within the last year that we've seen the biggest school districts start to bring in their curriculum. And what we're seeing, though, is is classrooms becoming very chaotic. Think about what happens when you tell students that they cannot be Um, disciplined, or at least they cannot be suspended from schools or expelled. And there's horror stories abounding out there. There's one example coming from uh, Santa Ana, where a student had her hair set on fire by another student. And typically, when something like this would happen, the result would be at minimum a suspension, perhaps even a student being expelled for this. But now under these new guidelines that are being adopted about um, restorative justice, And and these these guidelines that are brought in, they sit down and they have a little conversation and and nothing comes of it. The students back in class um, and and there's no consequences. The whole point is to keep kids in class. There cannot be suspensions because the idea is that if students get suspended or expelled. They're going to end off worse in life they're going to have a higher proclivity to end up in the justice system in the jail system so we have to do everything we can to keep them in schools when the, the reality
0: is if uh, if a student begins to to go through life with the idea that there are no consequences to any of their actions then that makes them far likelier to end up in the hands of the justice system at some point. I mean, if a kid is setting someone's hair on fire, I would think that that would have criminal implications.
3: How about punching teachers in the face and not getting suspended? That's happening in San Diego. And the teachers are being told, look, if you want to pursue this further, you can go ahead, but maybe we need to start looking into how your whiteness affected your decision in handling, in how you handled this situation, let it get to the point where he's punching you in the face. Like this is what administrators are telling teachers. So the teachers are told basically just shut up and take it because this is the new doctrine that we have that we're pushing in our schools and you need to get on board with that or you need to get out. And this is a decision facing a lot of teachers in America now. And it's really been on since um, the start of this year. It's really been moving forward in a lot of school districts. I'm thinking if if your if your
0: intent is to create an environment within a classroom where students can be engaged and focus on the work at hand and not be distracted by problems this would be precisely the wrong thing to do if your intent is to discourage teachers and cause them to their morale to go down the tank and to feel like what am I even doing in this profession this would be precisely the way to do it looking at a couple more of the items on this bullet point list being uh, taught by this uh, Pacific educational group, um, planning ahead is a white cultural phenomenon, and it is a ra- it is racist to expect minorities to exhibit this. Punctuality and respect are cultural traits. If you say, well, you know, we expect everyone to be on time to class, that there's something inherently racist in that, uh, that's a absolutely poisonous, toxic attitude to introduce into the mind of a student to basically say, look, you know, because you are a certain color, you're not held to those basic standards of civility and that, that enable a classroom to function properly.
3: Absolutely. Uh, but if you look at it, the seeds of this in America have been planted for really a long time. If you go back to you know affirmative action. What is the basis of affirmative action? We are going to, um, you know, in our colleges, for example, uh, dumb down administrations. Let people get into college based solely on their race. So now, now we have a whole generation of of, of um, students who have gone through the colleges, and if you're a minority student. Now, what do you have to ask yourself? Oh, I, I got in. I only got into college because I'm a minority. My grades normally wouldn't have cut it or I got into medical school because I'm black or I'm yeah. a Latino. And, and, yeah. and it's that same sort of poisonous thing that, that they're telling. But it's this like this 10 times here. worse. Right. This now is, now is like this
0: is affirmative action on steroids.
3: Absolutely. And we're telling our students they don't need to speak. English. They don't have to have proper grammar. They don't have to be able to write essays because things like that are part of the white culture. Right. That's really
0: entrapping them in in ways that will hold them back in a lot of ways in society.
3: Absolutely. How are you going to get a job? Is it based on merit or is it based on your race? And I think most people in America would want to live in a country, in a nation that's you succeed or fail based on your effort that you put in, your merit, what skills you can bring to the table. Not on race, but here we have, we're teaching our our kids, that everything is race. Right. The, that's the message that um, students are, are being taught in these schools, that society is institutionally racist. When they don't get the job, it's because they're black. Basically. This is this but is really
0: bringing introducing the idea into someone's mind that anything bad that happens to you is because of the failure of the system rather than because you need to do better.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, they're teaching this, this specific educational group, for example, teaches students that colorblindness blindness is bad, that only white people can be racist. I mean, think of the message that that sends all these students. It's telling them, you can't succeed because you're black.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, just looking at this from a big picture standpoint, um, I, I think that the most remarkable aspect of this, it's we're watching like brick by brick being built in this edifice that is going to end up uh, dividing this country in some... Just horrifying ways. I mean, this is leading to inevitable kickback. This is going to create problems in the lives of those young people who are being fed this pack of lies. But in the lives of the teachers, in the lives of the administrators, in the communities where this type of idea begins to take root more and more. And you have communities of one race against another race who are convinced that the other is just that there's something inherently wrong with them or that they're inherently prejudiced against them. The more that those kinds of ideas take root, the more divided we become, the bigger the the problems are going to be in the in the in the final analysis so thank you very much for uh, bringing this to our attention robert it's uh, just head shaking to watch this unfold and it's something that we really have to continue to keep our eyes on it's coming to a school near you thank you very much This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. We are broadcasting from the offices of the Trumpet Magazine in Edmond, Oklahoma. It's on the headquarters campus of the Philadelphia Church of God and Herbert W. Armstrong College. We've just finished up a summer camp for 144 teenagers from around the world. Last night I attended the final night of the camp, a big event, the Wards Night Uh, These kids are on fire. They're so excited and positive and happy and stirred up. And I've invited the camp director, Wayne Turgeon, and his assistant, Eric Burns, to talk to us about this camp what they're trying to accomplish in the lives of these young people, the strategies that they've used to have a successful camp and what it is that works so well in working with these young people. So they're here with me in the studio. Hello, gentlemen. Greetings. Hello. It's good to have you here. Might be a little bit sleep deprived after uh, a late night last night, but so Wayne, let me start with you. What what sort of changes do you see in kids that come in three weeks experiencing uh, life at camp
4: here? Everyone's different, but for the first timers, obviously, a lot of them could be shy, quiet, and then just to see them kind of open up and blossom once they start to learn that they can be themselves, that here they're going to be accepted, encouraged, uh, uplifted, as opposed to put down like they might be out in the public school system.
0: So they come in, They you put them in dorms, we've got what, 12 kids. That's correct. in each dorm with two counselors. So they're they're living in pretty close quarters for the 3 weeks with that group of kids. What sort of dynamic begins to develop within the the dorm, the relationships among the kids themselves and with the the college students who are the counselors?
4: You just get quite a mix and they have to become a family very quickly. They have to learn to all unite and learn respect and cooperate in those very difficult conditions because it is, you know, it isn't, uh, it isn't like the comforts of home. It's uh, not rustic by any means, but there's going to have to be a lot of sharing and cooperation.
0: You know, the, I went to uh, an early night of the camp and you have this uh, tradition where you have every single kid in the entire camp get up and speak before everybody and say, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, and here's maybe a goal or two that I have for my camp experience. And one thing that really struck me is how many of the kids that are even even like 15, 16 years old who have this idea like I want to help The younger ones. Like I want to set an example and I want to make their camp experience better. That's a really extraordinary attitude in kids that young, it seems to
4: me. Well, it comes from the fact that they were embraced when they came on the scene by the older ones. They were made to feel welcome. They didn't have to be bullied or picked on. So they want to give the new ones that come in every head start that they can get to really bond and build while they're here. I think you have seen that too, Eric, where we take some ones that have never ever spoken a word in public and by the end of camp you can't shut them up i mean that is quite a transformation in such a short time
1: yeah i think uh, a lot of the kids when they come here do appreciate their past experience and we do to really try to teach that that adage you know that it is really a, a much nicer to be able to give than to just be a, a taker in society and and so these kids really do believe that, they embrace it, and they really do desire to try to help that younger kid. They really do try to bring those kids in and, and show them what a, what a fun time it can be just being around young people uh, with good attitudes.
0: You talked about um, how typical it is to see bullying. I mean, there's more and more stories coming about out about just how much kids are mistreated by their peers. You work really hard. To establish a thoroughly positive, very encouraging, very upbuilding kind of environment. I mean, I I've even seen uh, as kids are coming into meals, you want to make sure that every one of them has a smile on their face or that type of thing. What are some of the some of the strategies that you use to to uh, guarantee that it really is a positive experience for everybody?
4: Well, you just hit on that. Um, trying to get them to make eye contact, trying to get them to smile, and realize that they don't have to be afraid here. No one's going to put them down or hurt them. And when we have those sports that you were talking about, it's, hey, you didn't hit it that time, but you're going to get it next time. Uh, You know, you can do this. And just that positive reinforcement, that lets down those fears and those barriers and those walls.
1: And I I think it's really... Uh, a a good program where not only do we as as the uh, director and assistant director emphasize that, but so do all the workers and the counselors. And so we're in tune to those young people that come in that might not have the best situation at home and so we we teach and train our counselors to look for that and when necessary to bring it to mr. to uh, Wayne and myself and um, and we have the opportunity to go one-on-one with some of these kids and just let them know how much we really want their success and When they believe that, they really can open up and let us know, you know, what they're going through. And then we can work with them and show them how how much they can just enjoy, just come out and really enjoy the activity and enjoy the the fellowship with their other, you know, teenagers.
4: We hate to let them go because they become like our kids. If they can just hang in there despite the societal pressures and negativity, man, they're potential is so awesome. It's incredible. If they can just get something lit inside of them, I call it like an internal combustion engine, get that little spark of desire and motivation and ambition. Man, there's nothing that these young kids can't accomplish if they put their minds to it.
0: Eric, you're involved in uh, a lot of the intramural sports and the athletic activities with the college. Athletics is a big part of the the youth camp experience here—it seems like the um, there's definitely that disparity that you said between those who are more athletically oriented and those who aren't—and you, you've got a program that's meant to accommodate everybody. What are the benefits that you really see from the way you run the athletics here?
1: Yeah, we uh, think of competition in a cooperative manner, and so both teams are are their desire is that each of the co- the contestants put their best foot forward. Uh, we do tell them to strive to win. We, uh, we have a, a theme that's eye on the prize. We want the, the young kids to really try as best they can to win, but the emphasis is not on the winning, and so it's really on trying to cooperate. So now, my background is in parks and recreation, and so I've, I've seen throughout, throughout my uh, career um, the idea of, of having organized sports. And it just seems that today fewer and fewer kids are able to participate in some of these types of sports. And so they come to our camp with a lot less ability and even sometimes having very little just common, you know, uh, conditioning. conditioning yes. And so uh, it can be a stress and a strain on them initially, but we really do see after three weeks that they're actually enjoying it more. Hmm. And so what we try to do is encourage them when you go home, try to get involved in some sort of a sport activity because the coordination that you learn from sport, the cooperation you learn from sport, um, there's, there's discipline in sport, and uh, there's really so many different benefits that just are, are brought out by a sport activity.
0: One of the uh, stories we were talking about earlier in the program is this uh, Rethink Discipline Initiative. Uh, that uh, the White House is putting forward, where they're basically saying that the problem that we have with our young people is that we're too strict, we're too authoritative, we need to pull back on some of those things. You really have a very different approach here. It seems to me like this camp is is extremely well organized, and there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of discipline in the sense that the 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 schedule is very regimented and so on. Uh, but also the uh, the attitude of the campers toward the counselors and toward the uh, toward the staff in general seems to be very respectful. How do you use authority in a positive way, and how much does that contribute to the overall effect of the
4: camp, would you say, Wayne? Well, for our listeners, we don't lay a hand on. And the (laughs) children, just to start out with. No no corporal punishment. No corporal or capital. Uh, That's what the beauty is of our job. We have to rely on parents to do their job at home. So when we do get the children after a screening process, we're not going to have the real big rabble-rousers. We're going to have kids that basically want to do it the right way. Basically, if they come here and they know that there are some standards, there are some morals, there are some expectations of them... And we are living that. We're setting the example ourselves. They can see the fruits in our lives. They know that we're happy. We're enjoying life. They're going to buy into that because they want what's working.
0: It strikes me, really, that the the standard is established. This is what we expect the behavior to be. And once you kind of establish that standard, you eliminate a lot of nonsense. And it enables the kids to thrive within that environment because they're able to put their focus on what they should be doing. The attitudes that you're experiencing at this camp, are like almost completely on the positive end of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that again, this idea where we mix, you know, 12, 13 year thirteen-year-olds all the way up to nineteen-year-olds in each one of the dorms, and some of these younger kids coming in see that the older kids are buying into the idea that we need to set standards, and when we all meet that standard, we all have a better time together. And when they see their, you know, their fellow teenagers respecting that authority and you'll you might notice it Wayne and I continue to say mr. Burns and
2: and, and, mr. and,
1: and huh. we do teach our campers and we even teach them to look at all of our counselors as mr. and miss mm. because it does set that little bit of respect as you're looking at somebody and it's much easier when you say mr. Uh, counselor you know even the though they're is. a year
0: or two older exactly they're still matter. mr. Yeah. yes
1: and and it lets them know that there is some authority and then we want to follow that authority. And when the counselors follow Mr. Turgeon and myself, our authority, then the campers can see that everybody has somebody that they report to. And when you do that, there's organized, there's structure, there's uh, an ease to follow And um, I think that the campers really do see how much easier it is than if everybody has to try to figure it out for themselves what they should be doing when everybody does that same thing. And we do it in a repetition way. Each day, you know, at meals, we go through the same kind of procedures. We meet Mm -hmm. outside and and they cheer and then we bring them in one dorm at a time and everybody high fives everybody. and, And they get used to a rhythm. They get used to a pattern. And they appreciate the structure and I think that's mm-hmm. what really leads to their happiness, and they don't need to be disciplined when everybody already knows what should be expected of them, and they also agree that that's a good thing to be expected.
0: Right? Yeah. The word discipline, kind of, t- you tend to think of it as a punitive measure that's exactly. taken against somebody who's doing. But really, we're talking about discipline in the sense of uh, regimentation, and there's a routine and a structure that that allows the kids to thrive yes so you we were talking about just the relationship between the campers and the staff what benefits do you see for the college students and uh, the young people who are put into these positions where they're you know they, they can work with these younger people and and see some of that growth take place over those three weeks what do you notice for them
4: well they are getting leadership position of a parent uh, over these children that gives them a good idea of what it's like to have family And that's basically what our camp is all about, family. We'll go around the horn with all the different counselors, or when we meet with the assistant counselors, and we'll have them give a report on how things are going, and they'll admit, hey, I've got this issue. Can I talk with you after we have this general meeting? You can give me more specifics on how to deal with it. So what a dramatic amount of pressure and responsibility on their shoulders to deal with this kind of issue that they would never, ever have unless they were placed into that responsibility.
1: As the assistant dean students, I get to see the students before and during and even mm-hmm. after. And it's amazing how many after camp want to call their parents and apologize. Right.
0: <laughs> so they get a sense of uh, what the effect that the, this type of behavior can have on the one who's responsible exactly,
1: for it. Exactly, exactly. And so it is somewhat eye-opening because they'll be like, you know, I told him, and I told him, and I told him, and he still does that thing, or <laughs> she does that. And we say, uh-huh, <laughs> yes, that's just exactly like a parent, isn't it? Yeah. And and they do get an appreciation of that it isn't rebellion, necessarily. It's really a matter of kids do need to be, those things have to be repeated. And you just have to keep that good, calm, you know, presence. You need to encourage them and use that positive reinforcement. And then you see that light click on and... and our counselors when they see that that gives them a real excitement to know hey this person actually listened and they did it and look at the success that we have and it encourages them in when they're in that position to try to make sure that they're listening and being encouraged and then further developing themselves
0: I'd like to know from each of you just to conclude uh, what the most gratifying aspect of your job is or the thing that you've seen that that uh, really makes the job worthwhile I'll start with you Eric
1: I love to see just a big old smile on a camper's face, you know, and especially when they're ready to leave here. You know, when I say a big old smile, sometimes they're kind of sad that they have to leave here. But you know that deep down, they really did uh, love their time here. And you can see it in their eyes that they really don't want to go home because they've really had the best time of their summer. And a lot of them say the best time of their year. And so when you can really see a young person open up and be willing to show that feeling and, and that appreciation that they have for the experience, how can you not feel just really good yourself that uh, you've touched someone's life and you've uh, helped them to feel good and positive about what's going on around them, and especially in such a negative world that we're, we're seeing out there with so much danger and so much destruction and so much confusion. Uh, and when these kids come here and they've just let go, you can see they're happy.
4: When they develop that close personal relationship with their maker, their creator, and they become switched on to the right way of life, that is the most rewarding thing. Because you can talk to them and talk to them, but if they were just tuning you out and they just go back and do the same things that they were doing before and there's not a real life change, then it's a waste of time. But if you can always, as I say, affect just even one person, and that makes a difference in their life and how they turn out, As opposed to going the way that's easy, that's destructive, that leads to death, what a difference that makes. So that makes me the happiest when I can, even just with one camper out of 144, but we know there's a lot more. And when they express it and you hear about them later and you see what they're doing with their lives as time goes on, you can't get much better than that. You can't put a price tag on it.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think uh, both of you should go get some well-earned rest. <laughs> I hope you recover. Uh, thanks for all of your uh, time and your insights. If you want to see pictures of the camp, you can visit pcog.org. There's a, a blog there with lots of uh, pictures that, and uh, uh, quite a lot of information more about the camp. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming in.
4: Thank you for having us. Our pleasure.
2: It's really, really sad
1: The camp's at an end And we just can't when we see
4: Day's Last Word.
0: The summer I turned 17 was somewhat of a low point in my relationship with my parents. It wasn't terrible, but it seemed we were arguing over more and more silly things. I thought they didn't trust me. They thought I was drifting away from them. But something happened that began to turn that relationship around. That summer, I spent three weeks in Orr, Minnesota at a summer educational program, SEP, It was a camp sponsored by my church. It was full of activity, sports, water skiing, a canoe trip, dorm life, dances, as well as instruction in Bible studies, fireside chats, fellowship with ministers. And I realized at that camp that I had not been honoring my parents as I should have been. I resolved that when I returned home, I would do my part to make the relationship better. I didn't realize it at the time, but this change in my attitude was actually fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. In a letter he wrote in 1984, Herbert W. Armstrong, the man who founded the church I attended, the Worldwide Church of God, he wrote this, Here in Australia, I have visited the SEP summer camp for youths 13 to 18 years of age. Words simply cannot describe the importance of these summer camps. These hundreds of young people will be adults being married and having children in just one decade. They are learning God's way of fun, and they're being taught God's truth. Their lives are being changed. These camps and the church YOU program for youths worldwide, and I'll talk about this in just a little bit, they're turning the hearts of the children to their parents— and the parents to their children. And in this age when families are being broken up and youths are turning to alcohol, drugs, sex, and violence, and becoming strangers to their parents, that is one of the vital things God is doing through his church as prophesied in Malachi 4 and verse 6. That's the prophecy I was talking about. Later in this letter, Mr. Armstrong wrote, Not only are these summer camps of such supreme importance— but also our program of working with you parents so you may come closer to your children. He wrote this, I call on you to have a closer relationship with your children. The last two verses of the Old Testament are a prophecy showing how important that is for you today. So, this is what those verses say Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Those words beautifully describe Mr. Armstrong's work. Over his 57-year ministry, he worked intensively to build families and turn hearts. The YOU program, he mentioned, was Youth Opportunities United. As a teen, I attended regular YOU sporting events, dances, talent showcases, fundraisers, and socials with my peers and my parents. In its publications, the church printed regular articles on marriage and family. They taught about dating, sex, childbirth, every aspect of every phase of parenting and child development, even grandparenting. Beginning in 1981, it began printing Youth Magazine for teens with frequent articles on building strong intergenerational relationships. Mr. Armstrong also founded three campuses of Ambassador College to teach true values to young people. Every effort was made to give graduating students the best possible foundation for happy, productive marriages and families. Ministers also offered counseling to couples considering marriage in order to help them build successful and enduring families. This was all specifically meant to fulfill Malachi's prophecy. It was a job Mr. Armstrong took very seriously. And at the heart of the issue was the deep biblical truth that we are preparing now to enter God's eternal family. That's why success in building our families today is so important. It gets us ready for our future. After Mr. Armstrong died in 1986, the Worldwide Church of God turned its back on this legacy of Bible-based family instruction. Within four years, though, the Philadelphia Church of God was founded. That's the church that sponsors this website and this radio broadcast And right away, it resumed the work of turning the hearts of family members toward one another. We provide solid scriptural instruction on building strong families and many other topics in our magazines, The Trumpet, The Royal Vision, on our websites, thetrumpet.com and pcog.org. Our magazine, True Education is for teens and it helps young people navigate life and guides them toward closer relationships with their parents and with God. Ambassador College is now closed, but Herbert W. Armstrong College has filled the gap. Our ministers regularly provide marriage counseling and child rearing help to our members. And we hold Philadelphia Youth Camp here in Edmond, Oklahoma and in the Philippines and Australia. If we do our job right, We will help turn the hearts of these young people toward their fathers just like mine was turned to my parents because of the work of Herbert W. Armstrong. I'm Joel Hilliker, and we're coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Remember, you can find us online at thetrumpet.com. Go there to read the stories that we talked about on the program today. You can even get a free subscription to our monthly news magazine, The Philadelphia Trumpet. Send us your thoughts or your questions by emailing letters at thetrumpet.com. Follow us on Twitter at, at thetrumpet underscore com. Find us on Facebook and Google Plus by searching for Philadelphia Trumpet. I want to thank my guests today. Robert Morley, Jeremiah Jacques, Wayne Turgeon, and Eric Burns. Thanks to our technical staff, Dwight Falk and Josh Sloan. And I'll leave you with this thought from Robert F. Kennedy. This world demands the qualities of youth. Not a time of life, but a state of mind. A temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a predominance of courage over timidity, of our appetite for adventure over the life of ease thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour it's been a pleasure until next time keep watching your world you've been listening to Trumpet Hour on The Voice 101.3 KPCG and on the web at kpcg.fm.